Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles, huh? That's how we need to start. Grab your Bibles. Open up to the Old Testament book of Psalms, to the book of Psalms. So uh, we finished our study through Ezekiel a couple of weeks ago, and last week we looked at Psalm 6. For the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at a psalm each week. We're going to cover Psalm 6 through 10. So that means this week, this morning, open up to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. You know, it is, it's no fun being falsely accused, is it? It's something I think we've all probably faced in one situation or another, and, and we find it to be on the low end of the scale to be something that is extremely annoying, or on the high end of the scale, something that can be terribly distressing and, and painful, really. What's worse, though, is when you find yourself in a situation where you are being falsely accused, and yet there is no way for you to defend yourself. There's no avenue for you to argue your case, to present the reality of your innocence. And and you find yourself just in a place where you have to simply live with the fact that other people think that you're guilty even though you're not. You just have to endure the injustice, maybe even the shame, all over something that you didn't even do. That's David's situation. That's David's situation as he writes Psalm 7. He's been talked about. He's been misrepresented. He's even been lied about. But there's nothing that he can do to fix it. And so he does the wise thing. He turns to the Lord. And dear friends, is that not where we should always turn? Rather than looking to our own ability to clear our name, or rather than putting our hope in, in us being able to cause others to somehow see and understand our innocence, we should instead turn to the Lord and we should ask for his mercy. That's really what we need, isn't it? And we should put our hope and our trust in him. Psalm 118 says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And dear friends, please understand, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in yourself. You're included in that. It is better to put our trust in the Lord. It is always better to trust the Lord no matter the situation. Uh, no matter what it is you need, no matter what. Well, let's take a look at our, at our text for this morning, Psalm chapter 7. And since the Psalms were written for corporate worship, uh, let's read this chapter together, shall we? Will you do this? Will you stand with me? Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7. And together we're going to read, we're going to begin there in verse 1. I'll give you a warning though, partway through the, the psalm, there's a, a notation, it says Selah, and we'll read that, we'll pause, 
and we'll read Selah, and then we'll continue on, and you'll understand why as we get into the message. So, Psalm 7, beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning that you would would meet us here in this time. Your word promises that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And Lord, our desire this morning is to learn from you, that you would speak directly to our hearts, that you would open our minds to comprehend, and Lord, that you would soften our hearts so we might receive the things that you would say to us this morning. We ask you to speak to us, Lord, and to give us ears to listen. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Before we dig into the text of Psalm 7, uh, let's look at the the title notation that is included there at the beginning of the psalm. Uh, Many of the psalms have uh, these title notations, just simply notes that accompany the psalm. And though they are not considered to be a, a part of the original text of the psalm, yet they are thought to be quite ancient and to be quite reliable in what they tell us. 
as do many of these notations. This one includes a musical instruction. Uh, it also has a statement as to who wrote this psalm. In this case, it was King David. And it also provides us with a reference to the circumstances surrounding the writing of the psalm. But as is also often the case with these notations, we don't really understand the musical note. And we can't exactly identify what part of David's story this psalm describes. The notation tells us that Psalm 7 is a shigion of David. But we have no clue what a shigion is. The word could come from an Assyrian word that sounds kind of similar. It's a word that talks about mourning. So maybe this is a song of mourning. I think it's more likely that it's related to a Hebrew word that means to wander. And musically, we can only guess what that means. As some scholars believe that this means that the pace or the rhythm of the song is supposed to vary or to wander from slow to fast. Maybe so. We, we don't really know. We also read in the notation that this is a psalm of David. Now, we certainly know uh, who David was. He was the second and the greatest king of Israel. Uh, but this being a song of David could mean that it was a song written by David, or could mean that it is a song about David, or that it was a song written for David or in honor of David. Now, in this case, the, the context of the note and of the psalm, it, it kind of clarifies for us that it is a song that was written by and sung by King David, reflecting upon an incident within his life. So this is a worship song. It's a song that was written by David and sung by King David. It says, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now again, there's another mystery for us. We have no idea who Cush is. Uh, but verse 1 does give us a bit of a clue. Look down at verse 1. It says there, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. And so David says here that he is being pursued. He's being chased from place to place and that he is in a desperate situation. And we know from the notation that this desperate situation is, is caused by the words of a man from the tribe of Benjamin whose name was Cush. Well, we know that King Saul, who, who was the king before David, the king that David replaced, the king Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And we know that King Saul... He, he chased and he hunted David mercilessly. So maybe, uh, just maybe, Cush was one of Saul's men. Uh, a man who, like Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And as 1 Samuel 24, 9 recounts for us, maybe he was the source of the, uh, of the words that were being said to King Saul 
tearing down David and accusing David of being disloyal. Uh, Look at 1 Samuel 24. Uh, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Well, regardless if that is our situation or not, uh, here very clearly David is in a situation where he feels powerless to protect himself. He's done what's right, but he's being accused of great wrong, and he can't do anything about it except to ask God to save him. On his own, David is like a lamb among lions. He is simply going to be devoured, he says. If God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't rescue me, David says, I'm done. So David cries out to the Lord to rescue him. And that's that's where we always need to turn, isn't it? Not just when our situation becomes desperate, although certainly then, especially when our situation is beyond our ability to control, to solve, we need to turn to the Lord. We need to cry out to the Lord to rescue us. Friends, we need to keep in mind, we need to always remember what 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us. There Peter says this, he tells us what to do and he tells us why to do it. And we need to remember both of these things. Peter says this, cast all your anxieties on him. Speaking of the Savior, Peter says, here's how to handle life. Here's what to do. And not just when someone falsely accuses you, but in whatever situation you find yourself, cast all your anxiety on him. When you begin to feel anxious, when you face a situation that you can't handle, when you are in over your head, in whatever situation you find yourself, Peter says this, cast your anxiety on the Lord. Put your trust in him. Put your hope in the Lord. Why? Well, he tells us why. Because he cares for you. God cares for you. I know it is, it, it's hard to imagine because we can, we can begin to feel like one of many lost in the crowd. And yet the Lord knows your heart. He knows your situation. And he cares. He cares for you. Verse 3. O Lord my God, If I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So here David is insistent. I am innocent, he says. He absolutely has not done the things that he is being accused of. Now, Don't mistake what David says here. Please understand, David is not saying that he is absolutely innocent, that he has never sinned. No, David understands quite clearly that he is a sinner, that he needs God's forgiveness. Other of the Psalms that David wrote show us that quite clearly. David is aware of his sinfulness. Psalm 51, for example. Uh, Look at what David says there. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew 
Certainly, David knew that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. But in this regard, in regard to this situation, David knew that he was innocent. Now, I want you to notice the the Hebrew word here uh, that follows verse 5. This word, selah. Again, it's a musical notation. And again, it's a word that we don't truly understand, though most scholars, I think pretty much all scholars, agree that it is a word that simply means stop for a moment. Pause here. Stop and think. Reflect. Wait a moment. Let this soak in before moving on. You know, there is, there is great value in pausing. Especially in our day. Especially in our day. Especially in a world where we avoid any sort of delay or holdup of our plans. Especially in a world where we can't wait at a drive through window more than 30 seconds without getting impatient. Can we? And any time that we have more than a 30-second wait, what do we do? We grab our phones and we demand to be distracted and preoccupied and entertained by them. Whenever there's a, a, just a, a minimal delay, far too seldom do we stop and wait for our minds to become quiet, to begin to think. Christian, this should be something that we seek after, that we pursue daily. Psalm 37 puts it this way, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. Now, if you have toddlers, you don't need to remember this, but if your kids are older than that, remember toddlers, remember constant motion, Remember inability to sit still. Does that not describe us in the living our lives far too often? We seldom are still before the Lord. Oh, we've got things to tell him that he needs to do. We've got things that we need to complain about. We've got stuff that we need to ask him to explain to us. But how often do we come to the Lord? And sit. Become still. And wait patiently. We need to sit quietly. We need to not be entertained. We need to learn how to listen for our shepherd's voice. We need to give the Lord a chance to speak to us. Selah. Well, David is insistent. He's insistent that he is innocent in this case. And since he is innocent, he asks for justice. Uh, Verse 6, he writes this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the people be gathered about you and over it reign on high. 
The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. So, David asks for justice. He asks for his innocence to prevail and for the wicked to get their just deserts. And he asks for it to happen now, not later. David merely asks God to do something that, uh, that God has said he will do. David asks the Lord uh, to do what, what he has said that he would do and really what God has to do if God is just and sovereign. You see, God must judge his creation. He has to hold us accountable for what we do if he is truly just and if he is truly sovereign. First Peter uh, chapter 4, there in verse 5, Peter reminds us that one day those who reject Christ, well, in Peter's words, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So in a sense, what David is doing here in this psalm is he's asking for God to, to bring a little bit of that final judgment to bear in David's current situation. David is asking God to set right then and there and that time something that in the end the Lord has already promised that he will set right. David is saying, Lord, don't make me wait. Don't make me wait for that final judgment, but bring some of your justice upon the wicked here and now. He goes on in verse 10, he says, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So notice something there at the beginning, there in verse 10, notice that even the upright are saved by God. Even they need saving. Even those who are generally upright in heart, they need God's grace. They need God's intervention. They too need God to rescue them. Here's truth. All who are saved are saved by Christ's death in their place. None of us, none of us have earned our way. None of us deserve heaven. The difference between the saved and the lost isn't that the, the saved are better or more deserving than the lost. The difference is that the saved have surrendered. The saved have surrendered themselves to Christ. They've, they've received God's grace and so they have turned away from sin. Well, the lost have refused to submit to Christ and therefore have chosen their sin over forgiveness.
But Jesus, having paid for our sin, having purchased our forgiveness, he doesn't want anyone to miss out on what it is that he has done for them. So what does he do? Well, when the unrepentant refuses to turn away from their sin, for them, God sharpens his sword and he readies his bow. Those who will not come when they are invited for their own good, because he loves them, the Lord begins to discipline them. Revelation chapter 3, here's how Jesus himself puts it. He says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Dear friends, please understand, this is not a game. This isn't just about personal preference or, or religious preference. What we're talking about here is eternity. It's reality. It's heaven or it's hell. And because of that, because God loves us as he does, his love for us motivates him to do whatever it takes to cause us to turn from sin and to turn to him. And so he brings his discipline. God knows that our sin will devour and destroy us. And because he knows that, it moves him then to do whatever it will take to bring us to that place of surrender. But if we refuse to repent, if we stubbornly cling to our sin, well, as 2 Peter chapter 3 warns us, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, what begins is discipline. For the unrepentant, it ends as destruction. Verse 14. David says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Here's how it works. Hey, David lays it out for us. The fruit of a man or a woman's life is merely an expression of their heart. We often want to blame something outside of ourselves for our sin, don't we? We want to blame our circumstances, uh, our parents. We want to blame other people, any people. I'll, I'll blame my kids. Uh, we, we want to blame the world that we live in. Anything. We want to blame anything that lets us avoid the truth that we're the problem. That we're the problem. In a very similar passage, James warns us as well. He says this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. And then he adds, do not be deceived, beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. This is how it works. The wicked man produces sin. It's the fruit of his life. And eventually, he pays a price for his own wickedness. Look at verse 15. 
He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief turns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. In the book of Esther, take that for your homework, okay? So tonight, go home, open up to the Old Testament book of Esther, and and, and read what takes place there. In the Old Testament book of Esther, Haman, the wicked Amalekite, he builds a gallows, a structure upon which he plans to hang the righteous Jew Mordecai. But in the end, it's Haman who gets hung on the gallows. Now, things don't always end up quite that tidy in this life. You don't always get to see it play out the way you do in the book of Esther. Let me tell you this, in the end, when God judges all the earth with perfect justice, on that day, the wickedness of the wicked will fall upon their own heads. And there will be justice. Verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. It is God's righteousness, His holiness, that causes us to worship Him. God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present at all times. But we worship Him because He is perfectly holy. Because He is perfectly righteous, true, good, and loving. And what is unthinkable is that God has taken his righteousness and he has given it to us as a gift. Philippians chapter 3, there in verses 8 and 9, Paul declares this. He says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is everything he's talking about? All of his religiousness, all of his moral superiority, Everything that the religious person would take pride in, Paul says, it's garbage. It's garbage compared to the gift that God has given, the gift of his righteousness. Listen to what Paul says. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not my performance, not me, it isn't about me, but rather, he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, our God who is holy and righteous has offered to clothe us in his righteousness, to save us. Think back on what David has, has said in this psalm. Think, think about his circumstance and the process that he has followed. Here is David being lied about, being slandered. He is anxious. He is angry. 
He wants to set things right, but he can't. And so what does he do? Well, he cries out to God and he says, God, here is my situation. I can't fix it and I need you too. He says, God, I am innocent. I didn't do this, but I need you to fix it because I can't. And David doesn't look to try to do it himself. David doesn't try to insert himself and force his will upon the world around him. But rather, he puts his trust and his hope in God. He puts his trust and his hope in his Savior. And where does his focus go? Where does his attention go? Well, at the beginning, man, he is focused on what's being done to him. He is focused on on what is being said about him. It's like being torn apart by lions, David says. But where does he end? Where does he take himself? Where does he direct himself? Through this song, through this process, through worshiping God, David comes to the place where his focus, his attention is on the righteousness of God. So often, friends, when we face these kinds of trials, and especially this one, especially when someone falsely accuses us, man, it's all about us. How dare they say that about me? I mean, I could see, I could see why they'd say it about some of you. But me? How dare they? It's all about me. It's where my focus is. I hurt. Man, there's nothing like pain to grab your attention, is there? You know, some little twinge in, in some you know, part of your body in your foot or in your pinky and this part that you were fairly unaware of, this bodily part that you really had ignored for months at a time suddenly has your undivided attention because of some little hangnail or something. David's pain has drawn his attention to himself, but what does he do? He gives himself to worship. He puts his attention on the Lord. He puts his hope in the Lord. He's not, he's not putting his attention on, okay, here's my four-step plan to clear my name and to prove that, that I'm not the, the jerk, but this guy's the jerk. Instead, David puts his hope in the Lord. He says, God, this is yours. Handle it. Lord, I give it to you. I'm going to let you deal with it. It's out of my control. And he puts his focus on the Lord. He puts his attention on the Lord, on the God's righteousness, on God's goodness. And you know, we get to the end of the psalm, and guess what? David's still being slandered. David's still being lied about. But now it doesn't matter. Because David's eyes are on the Lord. The Lord who gave his righteousness to us as a covering, as a payment for our sin. You know, this morning we're going to have opportunity to share in the Lord's table. We're going to have opportunity to remember the cross. As we come to the time of worship, we are going to have opportunity to remember that Christ died in our place that he gave himself to pay for our sin. 
If you belong to Christ, we invite you to come to the table to partake of the, of the bread and of the juice, to remember his death in our place, his sacrifice on our behalf, and to put your eyes on him, to put your focus on him. Circumstances don't often change, but our focus can, and that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm and for David. God, we, th we thank you that you offer us a path to peace and to contentment even in the midst of the situations of our life. Father, even in the midst of things being messy, things not being the way that we want, we look to you to bring justice. We look to you to set things right. And Lord, we look to you. We ask, Lord, that your righteousness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your love would absolutely flood our field of vision. God, that that would be all that we would see. And that in worshiping you, we'd find peace. Lord, work in us. And in this time, we pray it in Jesus' name.